First, I want to say we really need to stop asking the question about what the future will bring. I, I mean, I get, uh, I get this question every two hours now. <laughs> what is the future going to bring with and after COVID and so on? That's not a very good question because, you know, the future doesn't just fall down on us. Uh, we make the future. We create the future by action or by inaction. So to predict the future is really something I think that may have been possible 50 years ago under different circumstances. But today, instead, I think we should ask some different questions. Now, the first one is, what observations can we make that lead us to understand the future? And what kind of strong foresights can we develop? And, and foresight is really what I do. You know, foresights are observations, they're intuitions. But I prefer to call it just kind of a hunch, yeah? getting a good idea. You know, when Jeff Bezos started the Kindle, he, ha he didn't have proof how great it was going to be. He had a hunch. And when Daniel X started Spotify, I think his hunch was music on the cloud can be successful. And so we, we develop hunches. We, we think about what's coming next, and this is really what we need in the future. We don't need to have predictions. Hunches and intuition are just fine. 2020 is obviously a giant change of program, and it's been a tough year, and many people are calling it the lost year. And for myself, I can only say I've really missed traveling, seeing all of you. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going through this thing right now to talk to you, which is also fun, but it's just different. And I, I do miss that, but I think we're having a change of program across every single part of our lives where we travel, how we travel, what we do, who we speak to, where we work from, who's paying for our rent, everything is changing. I mean, talking about a giant reset, right? This is definitely a very big challenge for us. And now that the world, the world is coming a little bit out of lockdown in most countries, except for maybe Brazil, condolences, you know, that's really very tough right now. And of course, the US is still on the, on the upper side of that as well. And I think we have to uh, hold on to the idea that there is no going back to normal. You know, whatever normal was before, in many cases, normal wasn't that good anyway. But we're not going back to normal. We're not going back to what it was before. You know, we're going to be with corona and after corona, and it could be two, three, or four, or five years. It could be based on a, a vaccine that we find to come to a quicker end, and there'll be a next wave. There is no new going back to normal. Right? We have to get used to the idea that we are transforming into something else. And I think it's very important when we look at the economic impact, and I'm going to fade myself out here a little quick so you can see it better. People are asking me about this all the time. You know, what is the recession shape? Are we, is it going to be long-lasting or not? The answer to that is impossible to give, you know, because everything is in constant flow. The future has never been as uncertain as it is today. And being a futurist is setting yourself up for many people saying, well, you know, it came out different, right? So right now, I think it's better if we say, well, you know, it's quite likely we're going to end up with this, I think. We're going to end up with a, a shape that's prolonged. But then again, I'm also more optimistic about this, uh, as we can see in some countries like New Zealand, you know, to where that's already coming out of the recession in so many ways and, and where the epidemic has been, parenthesis, beat. Uh, good luck to the Kiwis and keeping it that way. But I call this the Great Transformation. And I think this symbol here is really good. It shows you what's happening. It's many things that used to be on top of the agenda have now become uh, less important. Traveling, going on a cruise ship, oil and gas, even banking, Bitcoin, the Brexit. Right? And what has become the top of the agenda? Right? 
technology, sustainability, remote working, solidarity, leadership. That's all moving to the top of the agenda. And uh, the, the World Economic Forum calls this the Great Reset, and Klaus Schwab has a very good piece on the, on, on the web website on this. But I call this the Great Transformation. And I think it is a huge crisis, and we are busy surviving, and we are busy dealing with this, but it's also a big opportunity. Milton Friedman once said, only a crisis, whether real or imagined, brings real change. I think that's so true. You know, now we, we're, we have this opportunity for change. You know, I'm doing a whole new TV show on this thing called The Poster with Corona Future. And this is something we talk about all the time. What is the good outcome of this crisis and which way can we go with this? So I have 10 points for you today. I know they tend to be rather lengthy and, and full of fancy graphs and stuff, but bear with me. Uh, I will publish most of this on my blog, futurevisgert.com, including the graphics if I can, even though, of course, they're interactive. Let's start with one big thing in the, right from the beginning. Right now, we're looking at big health, big tech, and big state as the outcome of this crisis. Big tech is the winner, clearly. Technology is everywhere now. And if it wasn't for tech, we couldn't be doing this. If it wasn't for tech, we couldn't be tracking and tracing. We couldn't be dealing with this as we have. You know, if it wasn't for technology, we'd probably have a lot more casualties, a lot more victims of this crisis. And healthcare is becoming ultimately so important. You know, hundreds of thousands of scientists are gathering and hyper-collaborating to find a therapeutic or a vaccine, or of course, antibody tests and so on. And the state, right? The state is everywhere now, everywhere, telling us what to do, covering our rent, maybe, if you're lucky, <laughs> giving us new rules. I mean, it's it's big state like we hadn't imagined. In many cases here in Switzerland, where I live, it's kind of a basic income. It's kind of like, yeah, we're getting money from the state to do this, right? to hang on. I mean, it's mind-boggling. So... This animation kind of shows it very nicely, right? It's all hanging together, right? Big tech, big state, and big health. And of course, the healthcare industry is becoming a tech industry, right? I mean, I do a lot of work in healthcare, and it's quite clear the convergence of that is extremely powerful. We are at a true pivot point. You know, I like to talk about pivot points and exponential change, but, but now we're truly at a pivot point to where many things that didn't used to go, and now they're okay, and now we're agreeing to them. And that has good consequences as well as not so good, which I want to talk about uh, and see what that means. But, you know, just this afternoon, I was looking at this graph here from, from Quartz, and this just came out this morning, qz.com, and they asked a question, where would you like to see more science funding following the coronavirus crisis? And it's quite clear, right? The winners are public healthcare infrastructure, technology, research, science. Yeah. There are, believe it or not, people who believe in science again. Um, greetings to the American government. It is possible to believe in science. So, second one. And again, there's a menti.com if you want to ask questions. I'm, I'll be peeking in also at the end. 50, 50, 42. Very simple to use menti.com on your mobile. So, let's go to the second point. Technology regulation. And we've talked about this before the corona crisis. Technology is so powerful. It's so beneficial. It is so spoiled. It is so governing the world, right? And 90% of that is happening in the US and in China, not here in Europe. Technology is 
exploding in every possible aspect. And I think it will be more important even in and after the crisis to control technology, to, to determine social contracts, digital ethics, and so on. I mean, ultimately, looking at this matrix, which I call the mega shifts in my book, right, this is not just about digitization, what people call digital transformation. <laughs> it's actually a really funny word now. We use it as a bit of a joke here in the office. Uh, it's not just that. In my, in my book, you know, Technology vs. Humanity, I, I wrote about this a few years ago. You can download that chapter for free at megashifts.digital. But it's all of the pieces of that puzzle coming together. It's all of the mega shifts coming together and all of the things are impacting each other. So software is getting smart, things are becoming automated. I mean, technologies are building every part of our life to many good effects and to many sort of detrimental effects like technological unemployment. And so it's quite clear when we're looking at the stats here, right? The technology companies are coming out quite nicely in the crisis and that may change, you know, if it goes on much longer. But the numbers are looking pretty good. <laughs> so it's, it's quite clear big tech is here to stay and even more reason why we have to look at how we can regulate them. Great video here by Microsoft. I want to show you this because you may have seen this, the HoloLens augmented reality uh, story to where the speaker actually presents in English and then creates a hologram and then speaks Japanese. So I, I'll give you the benefit of this right for a minute. Let's get started. First, let me introduce you to Mini-Me. There she is, my perfect holograph. And thanks to the power of HoloLens 2, she just floats right with me. I'm literally holding my hologram, so natural. Now she's a little small to do a keynote. So let's get her up so she can do full-size Japanese keynote. Render keynote. Yeah, of course, you know, do keep in mind this is a demo, <laughs> right? But, I mean, talking about changing our lives, if we could actually do this, I think airlines are going to start selling tickets for us to go into a holographic room and fly to Beijing for an hour and, you know, fly to the hologram. That, that would be a great business for Lufthansa and Swiss and all the other airlines, yeah, to think about that. But technology is truly science fiction right? becoming science fact, right? It's, it's mind-boggling in my, in my view how quickly that has evolved. And again, it's a demo, but I do, I do see that coming into reality. And, and so I'm a little bit worried about this you know, part. You know, do, are we going to have a world to where we are literally going to use this everywhere and being intermediated everywhere? And that kind of gets me worried about virtuality a little bit. But clearly technology is absolutely changing everything about this, including of course, social media, right? And this is really sort of the addiction model. You may have seen this in my previous presentations, but this is one reason why I quit Facebook. You know, I think too much of a good thing is a very bad thing. And clearly, uh, yeah, there is too much of a good thing in social media. That needs some very, very serious fixing. So that's about technology, and, and clearly the, the world around us is, is uh, evolving in technology and uh, making it even more powerful in so many ways. Um, that's something we have to think about. You know, what are the barriers of technology and, and, and where to, up to which point is it going to be good and to which point is it going to be less good? You know, this is clearly going to be quite a distinction to make and a tough job for politicians and government because now, you know, we used to say data is the new oil 
And now many people have said, well, you know, in many ways, data is the new plutonium, right? It's, it's the new kind of weapon, huh? you could say. And, and it's a lot of responsibility dealing with data. Imagine all, all of your healthcare data, your DNA, your biome, your phenotype, going into the cloud. Could save your life, but then again, who's going to be in charge? Right? And who's going to guarantee that things don't go wrong? So this is one of the things that I think we need to really pay attention to. And the same goes for all the stuff that's happening right now in the corona crisis. All of the tracking and tracing and the applications, the apps being used. And that's all very good stuff and really helping us. But we do have to ask a question. You know, how far is too far? And will we end up with 100% security and 0% freedom? Right? You really should adhere to the Einstein uh, said something very simpler, uh, similar, that everything should be as connected as necessary, but not more. I think that should be taken as a rule in general to figure out, you know, how do we connect, but not overconnect? How do we get a healthy balance? And we're going to need our state and our government and the European Commission and, and the FTC and everybody else to help us with this, right? Uh, we shouldn't always be ask, asking Mark Zuckerberg how far is too far. So I think we're moving into a world that I call uh, the great transformation I mentioned earlier with a sort of new human renaissance. You know, we are like Leonardo da Vinci, you know, in the, uh, in the Vitruvian man depicted. Now we, I call this the Neoluvian man. We are surrounded by technology. We're in a place where everything around us is technology. And we need to learn how to reposition ourselves in good ways and distance ourselves and use what we need and also find positive aspects that if we take it too far, become negative and how to, and how to avoid this. And that's going to take a lot of guidance, the Internet of Things, smart cities, artificial intelligence. But one thing is for sure, we should not move into the future with fear. We should be open to what's happening. We should be proactive, but we should keep a little bit of caution as well. We should be excited, but not stupid. <laughs> and I think this is a clearly important part when it's about policy, right? It's going to take a lot of wisdom uh, to deal with this. So it brings me to the third point. We're going to a new world that's going from ego to eco. There's a book with that name by a friend of mine, and I, I actually been using that term for roughly about 10 years, but I think we're going to a new form of capitalism. Uh, we're going to a form of capitalism that is markedly different than what we had until now, because capitalism as we know it, you know, extreme capitalism is unfit for the future. We see in the countries that are on an extreme capitalist footing, like the US and Brazil, we see those very issues. Right? We cannot deal in a, with a future where everything is polarized in this regard. I mean, looking at this graph, you know, people are always asking about GDP and the future, you know, and I say, you measure the wrong thing, you do the wrong thing. We shouldn't be measuring GDP anymore. We should measure GNH, gross national happiness, or GNP, gross national pro progress. I think Bobby Kennedy once said, GDP measures everything except for which makes for the things that make our lives worthwhile. We have to think of a different definition of success, not growth and profits. And that has been reflected last year uh, in the Business Roundtable announcement, I think it was already six months ago. So the shift from this kind of uh, shareholder value to stakeholder value, I think that is a crucial undertaking. And yes, in many ways, it may be sort of, you know, can you say greenwashing, but this is something we have to think about. How do we get to the future 
where we are getting out of those domes of power you know, and inequality. This is a very, very tough discussion, especially, again, US, UK, South Africa, Brazil, you know, the ecosystems. And that's, a, you know, it's the same in technology now and in media. We are moving into a future that's about ecosystems, distributed, connected, collective benefit. The most powerful companies are creating ecosystems. Uh, compared, for example, uh, Salesforce.com, uh, compare that to Airbnb, which in my view is an ecosystem, if I've ever seen one, given their responses to the uh, corona crisis. Uh, I can uh, uh, delineate it further later, but I don't want to go into too much detail on this now. But building ecosystems, right? And then, you know, we're going to end up with this. We just made this graph yesterday. You're the first ones to see it. Right? So basically, we need to think about the future of capitalism, the future of stock markets, the future of how we look at the world, what's important to us. And of course, the millennial development goals and SDGs and everything around this go in the same direction. People, planet, purpose, and prosperity. The triple bottom line, I think this is where we're heading, especially because of this crisis right now, where people are saying there must be more to it that we can do together to go into a positive future. And I think this is going to be a tough one. I'd imagine a stock market that is going to measure you in all those four domains where you don't get a bonus, you don't get a dividend unless you scored high in people, planet, purpose and prosperity. Not just prosperity. So that simplified world isn't going to work anymore. We see that now we have to collaborate to address the global challenges. Pandemics, technology, water, food and of course climate change. I'll get to that in a second. So this part of it, now that we talk about this sort of collective benefit and where things are going, clearly in America we have uh, corporate capitalism, in Europe we have sort of the social capitalism, and in Asia or China primarily we have the state capitalism. And now we, we are looking at this and saying, well, how can this actually pan out the best? Right? And I think what we're seeing right now is that indeed the United States of Europe are coming. I was really worried about this for a long time in this crisis because there wasn't really much action on this idea of standing up together to build the golden stars. It seemed like everybody was moving out and, and distancing themselves from the Union. But I think now the European Commission is on a good way and, and Merkel and, and Macron have come up with a good plan of uh, sort of Eurobond type scenarios, which means total and utter solidarity. Right? That's really what it's all about. And I think this is so crucial now to realize if we want to achieve something together, if we want Europe to be a global power, we're going to need solidarity. We're going to need to balance the South and the North and the East and the West. And I'll give you a short quote on this from Ursula von Leinen from the European Commission. She's the president, of course, of the European Commission. We are at a defining moment for the European Union, but I'm confident the past weeks have shown that there is a growing awareness of the need to invest together in the European common good and to do this by laying the foundations for the well-being of Europe's next generation. And I always think where there is a will, there is a way. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. You know, the European common good, right? that's, that's a tall order. The European common good. I think, how do we build this? Is this too ambitious? I don't think so. I think we're going to a future where this is becoming the theme for us in Europe and 
hopefully around the world and eventually leading to a kind of a world government. Now that sounds really crazy thinking about that today, right? But clearly, I mean, I think the future that we're moving into, right? take a look at this chart. Italy is going to get 81 billion euros as a grant. That's the plan. And I think this is a sign of solidarity. I think this is a sign of really sticking up for each other. I applaud Merkel and Macron and others for taking this path. I know this is a very, very difficult decision. But I think the United States of Europe are coming out of this, and in 10 years we'll be looking back and saying this was one of the key moments. America? Yeah, right now it's, yeah, it's looking pretty dark. The end of the year after the elections, hopefully they will actually be held letter election or not, or electronic or not, there's going to be a new renaissance in America. I mean, the, the country has such a spirit, and I've lived there myself for 17 years, there is going to be a comeback. I'm worried about so many things in America, but this I'm certain about, there's going to be a new renaissance of a new shift to where America will become part of the world stage again. Um, call that optimism, but you know, let's think positive about the future. Right? So, point number five, key point, female leaders will show the way. And we can see this, what is happening right now. It is mind-boggling to me that the countries led by females, by women, right, are actually doing the best in the crisis and doing things that all of us should emulate. I mean, if you, if you look at the facts of this and just kind of, uh, you know, count the countries and, of course, the cities, also the mayors, uh, like the mayor of Paris and others, right, so Iceland, New Zealand, Germany, of course, right? Finland, Norway, Denmark, Taiwan. Right? Whether it's older or younger women, but many younger women. Right? The, the future is definitely heading in this direction. I call this EQ and IQ. Right? That's a tough one. I'm not going to talk about why women may have more EQ than men, but there's been lots of debates about this. I mean, clearly we're seeing fundamental leadership here from women, and especially from this woman. If I could distill it down into one concept that we are pursuing in New Zealand, it is simple and it is this. Kindness. Can you imagine a similar speech in the US ending with kindness or compassion? I mean, this is a very unique country. I love New Zealand. So if anybody from down there is watching, uh, you keep going in this direction. Right? So clearly, I mean, we're going into the future where that's really important. We had in the past not seen very many good numbers here. I mean, I think this representation of how many people are, uh, how many women were in government until now, that's obviously a very, very low, disencouraging number. But that will change very quickly. I think it's a definitive future trend that we're going to see uh, coming up. So number six, COVID-19 will prove to be a giant test run for climate emergency and climate action. I mean, clearly, we are really suffering now through this crisis, economically, personally, and otherwise, and many of us have long stories to tell. But think about climate change now. The United, the United Nations Climate Change Panel says in 40 years, if we go up to 4% warmer, we're going to have 300 million climate refugees. Uh, and the numbers, you know, if you read that stuff, it's not really easy conversation to have afterwards. But I do recommend you read Christina Figueroa's book, uh, the latest one, it's, it's called The Future We Hope, or The Future We Want, that's what it's called, that has a positive outlook, so I definitely recommend that. Um, but, I mean, it's quite clear when we're looking in this direction, saying, okay, well, yeah, what, is, what is the next step here? Uh, which way could it be heading? 
you know, we're seeing this emerge. I mean, this symbol of climate change and all of the stats. We're going to need to tackle this, and I think now is the time to do it to tie in uh, the recovery with a green plan. Whether it's a green plan in the U.S. or the green plan in Europe, I think clearly that's going to be a situation where we have to look at the stats like this and say, well, if meat and beef is such an issue, maybe there should be a tax on beef. Yeah, I know that sounds also like uh, I do like to eat meat sometimes, but I'm just contemplating. Right? And looking at the facts like this, clearly this is going to be an emergency, a thousand eggs of COVID. And we're going to have to get ready and organized for this quite clearly uh, in a future uh, that we want our children to have. Um, oil and gas. Right? I mean, I talked about this for the last five years, the end of oil, but now it's truly the end of oil. The price keeps going down and sometimes back up, but you know, it's quite clear now solar energy in many, in many places like India is cheaper than coal. Uh, and we're inventing new ways of, of generating energy. There's been lots of debate about you know, Michael Moore's latest movie on this whole discussion about green energy and, and of course, uh, biomass and all that. But suffice to say, I think green energy is turning into a business now and it's becoming profitable. So the end of the fossil economy, fuel economy is near and lots of people are pulling their money out. I mean, we're clearly seeing divestment here at unprecedented scale. I think if you're going to invest in fossil fuel in a few years, it would be almost a criminal act. Um, and that may very well become a global phenomenon. So huge shifts coming up, especially for the countries, of course, that rely on oil and gas uh, to develop new alternatives. Now is the time to do this great opportunity. There's only about 10 million jobs in oil and gas around the world. And some people are saying there could be 100 million new jobs in renewable energy if we found a way to fund it, of course. Uh, there, again, we get to you know, government responsibility. Um, I personally believe we're going to see a lot of carbon taxes coming up, carbon tax for flying, carbon tax for meat, carbon tax for entering the city. Uh, and it's time for us to, just, to adjust to it. We're not going back to the old days. It may very well be that in the future you pay the same amount for carbon tax on the airplane tickets that you pay for the ticket itself. And I know it sounds crazy considering how much I used to fly, but you know, doing this, of course, we won't be covering the carbon tax. Well, maybe for the computing power, we'll have to cover it. But then the question is, where does it go and who administers it? But I think this is definitely shaping up to go in this direction in a much more complex way than we had imagined until now. Point number seven, inequality. I mean, inequality is an, an interesting topic because in some countries it has actually decreased. Globally, it has increased, but in some countries it has totally increased, like the U.S. again. So that the discussion about inequality isn't like simple statistics, right? But the thing is, of course, we cannot solve that with technology. Right? We can't use technology to solve inequality. In fact, I would say because technology is so good in making it efficient and optimized, it makes it worse. In the U.S., the primary benefactor of the internet economy and the digital economy right, have been six big cities. Six cities that have raised the most money from this entire process of digitizing. So clearly I think inequality is a major concern. And if you're looking at the stats here, right, it's uh, yeah, 500 million people may be entering 
a state of poverty in addition to the current ones. Uh, and this is really strange because in the past we've had good news from Brazil, for example, people going, uh, coming out of poverty in the middle class growing and stuff, but now COVID is making that even more urgent to address because you know, of course, that inequality is the driver of terrorism, it's the driver of, of, of uh, criminal acts, it's the driver of discontent, it's, it's basically the number one reason why so many things go wrong. Looking at the US numbers, not looking good. Uh, of course, you know we didn't expect Trump, uh, Trump to really make a dent into this, <laughs> but it's been going up and up and up. And you know, here's the really sad part. Lots of research has shown that the higher the inequality, the higher is the rate of infections and of course of death in the COVID crisis. Lots of uh, reports in the last two weeks leveling the one against the other. And this is the US numbers here, right? If you live in the US, you know what that means. That's basically not going down. It has not flattened the curve like it has in Europe. And there's a very dangerous process going on in the US, in my view. And in Brazil, it looks like this, right? In Brazil, we're, we're actually seeing this increasing also because of the rampant inequality. That is something that we have to solve together. Clearly a top of the agenda item, you know, where we have to ask, okay, how do we solve inequality? Well, we're not going to write a code for it, right? These are policy issues and issues of governance, of wisdom, um, that will hopefully help us to get around to this. Right? Uh, the new way to work, right? remote everything. And clearly, you know, I'm a fan of, of seeing people. I'm a fan of going places. Uh, I used to be a musician. I like to stand on the stage and, and watch people and, and connect with people. And I think we all do. That's not going to go away. But a lot of things that can't be done virtually, training, some education, right? convening, coming up with ideas, group meetings, yoga. <laughs> right? I mean, there are things that are obviously working online. And many things are not working online, like doing keynotes, Online, it's a different story. It's a different piece, as you can tell. You know, I'm, I'm still working my way into all the mechanics of it. But that's the new normal. Clearly, we're going to be in a world like this. And unfortunately, not everybody has an office like this guy. And that's clearly also subject to finding out new rules. How do people get paid? Uh, how do people get supervised? And, you know, are they working remotely internationally? Then it's a question of freelancing and taxes and... You know, we can't have this kind of gig economy without any regulation and any social background to develop. That would be quite difficult. Right? Look at the stats here. Uh, if you're not convinced about this, I think this is happening in every country. Um, a lot of companies want their people to stay at home. Right? A lot of companies want their people to work from home and they're looking to save costs that way. That's, of course, difficult if it's about actually doing things physically. But that's a future we have to get used to. Get really good at working from home. I think that's one of the key things, working remotely, especially if you're in a remote area like Australia and New Zealand, comparatively speaking. Right? So it could be heaven or it could be hell. I think, yeah, it's a mix. Could be really great or it could also be quite scary and lead to sort of an isolation. And, and to me, you know, in the remote working process that I do now for the last four months, it has become so important for me to connect with others on regular Zoom calls and like the stuff I never had time for uh, and to appreciate other people's company. I think the more we connect with through the network, we want to connect with people, that's not going to go away. And I think we will also go back to, back to meeting, albeit probably in different ways. Point number nine, artificial intelligence. I always used to say jokingly, it's neither A nor I, 
It's not. It's neither artificial in the sense of like artificial sugar or or so, and it's it's not intelligent in the sense of human intelligence. These are smart machines. I prefer to call it intelligent assistants. And the hype has has been deflated a little bit, which is great. Now we're entering the phase where we say, you know, artificial intelligence is an amazing tool that's going to change our lives, but it's not a panacea, it's not a magic wand, it's not warfare for humans, it's not technological dominance, it's just a tool that we have to administer like we administer all the other tools. It's a powerful tool, especially as it grows over years, over the years. And but AI in healthcare, for example, has great potential. I've looked at this a lot lately. Uh, Kai Fu Li wrote about this, you know, the, the Chinese investor, former uh, CEO of Google China, about all of the great things that AMI makes possible, you know, for example, hospital workflow variables and so on, and of course, drug discovery. And AI is actually being used in COVID-19 for drug discovery, but also for warning of other waves of pandemics. We'll show you a short example here on this video clip. After identifying the outbreak in Wuhan, Canadian company Blue Dot gathered data on people's movements based on their mobile phone use, which is what you're seeing right now. This was combined with other information, so this including is a company called Blue Dot, and they actually to use AI the subsequent to read data spread of from the virus. all different sources and determine the hotspots for likely outbreaks and to predict potential measures and so on. It's very powerful stuff. I think we're going to lead a lot more of this in the future. But it's not the magic wand. It's not deception. It's not. Uh, it's not her. It's not any of those things that we see from Hollywood. In fact, if you want to know about AI and the future of AI, don't look to Hollywood. Uh, look towards some really cool book like Stuart Russell's new book called Human Compatible. Uh, that's a great book to read about balancing AI. But the fact remains, you know, we're moving into a world where data data is becoming truly important and the driver of wealth. Artificial intelligence is on top of the data creating actual learning, deep learning, machine learning. Uh, and that's going to be, I think, one of the main drivers of economy. And of course, the Internet of Things. Those three things are the most important game changers that I see here for us. Uh, also in the sense of uh, being able to use it as, even as a small business. That's going to be absolutely everywhere. But as my colleague Paul Sefo says, futurist from San Francisco, a really bright guy, he says, don't mistake a clear view for a short distance. Truly intelligent machines? I think that's, as Coltsbaugh also says, it's 2050. Yeah, that's probably too soon for us to get ready for that. But it's not happening next year. It's not. I mean, machines are intelligent in their own way of a machine. They don't have human objectives, and they probably shouldn't. Again, read Stuart Russell's book. I think you're uh, human compatible. You'll be... Uh, quite well uh, advised afterwards. And my final point is on, on this personal note, I've had so many debates about this. I did a workshop, uh, a seminar online about six weeks ago on humanists versus transhumanists with Callum Chase. It was great fun. It's on YouTube. Uh, I think we're heading to a deep conflict between people who want to use technology to make us superhuman uh, and people who would reject that. And I think part of that is a debate about do we want to remain human and remain within the confines of being human? Or do we want to transcend humanity, as they like to say? Well, my answer on that is, it would be great if we can transcend technology <laughs> and not humanity. I think we're clearly moving into a world where this right, is becoming an objective. For many, many people are interested in longevity and you know upgrading ourselves and reprogramming ourselves, becoming 
you know, larger than us as becoming a superhuman. That's going to be a big debate. And I think a big part of that process will be this handshake between humans and machines. And that's something we're going to have to fine-tune. I think, again, my approach to this is, yeah, let's be proactive. Let's investigate. Let's find out what we can do here. But let's embrace technology and not become it, but use it for our own benefit. And that comes down to digital ethics, uh, one of my favorite topics. Right? Ethics is the, uh, the difference between knowing what you have a right to do and what is the right thing to do. We're going to need a lot of that. So uh, many of you in the audience, I think, are on this turf. So that's definitely a great job for the future, especially after this crisis. So some final thoughts, and then we'll take some questions. I know you've been um, hiding out there for quite some time. So <laughs> some final thoughts on this. First, the three future principles of technology. There's no way around this, and the crisis has told us this. Things are happening exponentially, the pandemic, but also hopefully the fix for the pandemic. Industries are converging, technology and pharma. Combinatorial products are coming out everywhere. Look at Roche's new, new medication, or new, uh, not medication, but antibody test. That is a definitive step towards this uh, uh, merging of the borders of different sciences. And, and we're going to see some pretty mind-boggling stuff here. So that's, to me, that... Uh, the uh, technology future principles and the other ones are the human principles and these are coming down to the agenda because of the crisis we want holistic business models where everybody can participate regardless of color age sex right where e equality is a given we want circular models where everything is sustainable not just sustainable in the terms of environment but also in terms of human sustainability right? like facebook and social media is not humanly sustainable not societally sustainable and human-centric and it has to have human benefit not human-centric in the in the sense of the anthropocene you know it's all about the benefit of humans no not that but about the central benefit to humans and people planet purpose prosperity as i said earlier i think that's the future principles all six of those will be talked about a lot in the future. So let me summarize. I see end, uh, light at the end of the tunnel, very sad tunnel here, in this great transformation. I see a unique chance to reboot. I, th I see through all the suffering a new way of saying, well, maybe we can do it differently. Maybe this is a cut. Maybe this is a reset. Maybe we can think about our economic logic. Maybe we can think about why we care about others. Maybe we can think about compassion. Maybe we can think about what we want in the future. And so here's four points I want to suggest to you as the immediate strategy for the future. First, survival. Make sure you can survive. You're safe, you're financially stable, you can get organized. This is really the top priority right now because we're not anywhere close to the end of this crisis. Second one is adaptation. Adapt your business model. Pivot. I see so many restaurants now who are petitioning the city to close the street in front of their restaurant so they can move out with their tables into the street. Right? And now many tech companies are creating products that have to do with COVID, like, like um, ventilators, for example. There's a company that makes 3D printed ventilators now in Portugal, right? pivoting to a different opportunity. Collaboration. I think the future is ours to take in so many ways if we collaborate, right? if we have solidarity, if we help each other, right? if we build a true ecosystem, not another ecosystem. And that also leads to transformation, a change in the way that we are, what we can do, what we want to do. And finally, the really big question I mentioned earlier, 
The question that really stands in the, in the room right now, what kind of future do we want? This is something we have to ask. We don't ask the question of what kind of future we can have. Because, yeah, well, the answer is we can probably have pretty much any future in the next 20, 30 years. We can go to other planets. We can change ourselves. You know? What future do we want? Right? What kind of system do we want? Right? That's the key question when I think about foresight of the future. And how do we create that preferred future? Right? So I want to thank you very much for your attention. Of course, you know my book, Technology vs. Humanity. It's available now in 12 languages. And... Uh, I'll bring myself back in here. <laughs> uh, so that was my presentation. And now we're going to take some questions. Uh, let's see where we have questions here. We have questions on the, on the Menti. And we have questions on YouTube. Um, and of course, you can still post questions after this event. I'm going to leave the Menti running. If you want to ask questions, it's really quite simple. Menti.com. And the address is 505042. I'm going to bring in the questions now so you can actually see them um, and have a good look, and, and then we will decide which ones to answer. Okay. Yeah, my fancy iPad is, is going to bring in the answers. So, um, great. So, okay, let's start with the, with the green one, okay? So whoever posted this, and I, th I think this is anonymous, apart from Google knowing everything, of course. Right? Um, so you're afraid of European solidarity is wishful thinking at best and naive. See the Dutch and Danish responses to recent funding proposals. Well, to be honest, you know, I think what would be really naive is to say that we're not going to help our southern neighbors or eastern neighbor pretty much under any cost. Uh, and the Germans had the same tune for a long time and then they came around to it and I think the Dutch and the Danish will do the same because in the end you know the rising tide floats all boats and if, it, if Italy ends up with 81 billion euros um, to make up for what they are losing right now yeah you could say that's going to be a problem having to pay it back if they don't have to but it's going to raise lots and lots of liabilities and discussions but at this point to me the question really is what is the lesser problem? Right? What is the lesser evil of all the proposals? And I think really, if we want to be strong in Europe, we have to come together on the police force, on surveillance, on cybersecurity, on food, on water, on energy. And that to me is the only way forward, the only way that we can guarantee that we'll become a major player in Europe. And that's worth, I wouldn't say any price, but it's worth the price that we see right now. Yes, it may be wishful thinking, but I think we'll see the United States of Europe emerge in the next five years, and I'll be catching up with you in five years to, in five years to discuss this. Um, let's take the red box on the top. And the move to force distance learning has changed the way millions of people engage in learning. Post-COVID-19, will we still need schools uh, as we had them before? Well, the answer really is quite clear in my view real human learning happens between people. It happens in a three, uh, well, not 3D, it happens in a, in a full-scale environment where all of human senses are involved, right? Emotional intelligence, uh, uh, kinesthetic intelligence, musical intelligence, not just logical intelligence. We, that's how we learn as humans. And what else we can learn online, what we learn in places like this, is valuable, but it's not the same. The human brain, in my view, is, is wired for engagement, it's wired for relationships, it's wired for experiences. 
it's not wired for data streams. And to, to me, it's kind of a reductionism to think of schools as being like, you know, dumping down information into my hard drive. Right? Uh, yeah, it's about the experiences. And I think that will continue, that will come back. I mean, why do people go to MIT today? They can download pretty much anything they want from MIT courseware, public courseware, or they can study right, because of the experience. And so I think online learning will boom. Uh, do things online will explode, but that's going to lead to more desire to actually get together, to meet, to have personal relationships. And I think this is really crucial that we recognize this, uh, that we recognize what we are and what we want to be rather than uh, what we can be and what we want to be rather than defaulting back to sort of technological solution. Uh, let's take another question. Um, top left, what are the thoughts on the future of news media? Uh, the newspaper industry where print is declining and monetizing digital is hard. Well, the answer really to me is this. Um, we have found out that digital media and running media with algorithms isn't working. It has benefit. It has, it does things. You know, I'm a heavy user of Twitter. I left Facebook, but algorithmic media is not really human media. We need to have a cross between smart machines and smart algorithms smart advertising, and human meaning. And this is where journalism comes in. I think journalism will make a comeback. Not print, but the process of human media. And I think public taxes need to be used to support this, and, and in Europe we are doing this, clearly. I think if we really want to have different kind of media, we need to invest in it. And we need to get mainstream social media to agree on the fact that they are media, and therefore also liable for how they do things. It's sort of a give and take, and you know, I think we went for a long time into the other direction saying it's got to be digital, it has to be fast, it has to be cheap, it has to be algorithms, and now we're seeing that algorithms are not enough. I think the more that we connect on the social media, the more we also must protect what makes us human, which is, which is not the stream of data and so on. Okay, I'll take one more question, and of course you can ask another one here if you want on menti.com. Okay, um, lower right, the blue box, how can we protect ourselves from the dangerous and fractious groupthink that is only deepened by the rise in social media? Well, that is a great question. Uh, I will actually get myself back to the other background for this. Yeah, that's a question I'm asking myself a lot too. And for me, the answer is disconnect when you have to. Realize why you are using social media, like in my case for communicating for marketing, for talking to others, for many other things. But if I really want to get inside, it's about meeting people, it's about reading great books. You know, take Bill Gates, for example. You know, reads, I don't know, 20 books a month. <laughs> and he reads them all like this, and then it's one of the most uh, intelligent and, and brightest people I know. To me, that's something where we have to set the boundaries. And then I think we also need to ask government and, and state for protecting the things that social media could do when it's going really wrong, like election advertising and those kind of things. It's high time for regulation on this. But from my own point of view, right, offline is the new luxury. Uh, so disconnect when you can, you know, get a piece of nature. I think that works for all of us to get us back into who we are. So finally, I want to say thanks very much for tuning in. I think right now is the time where we need to connect to each other, help each other, listen to each other, come up with new ideas, stay positive, because in the end, my view is the future 
is better than we think. Thanks very much for tuning in. Thanks very much for listening. And thanks very much for looking at my stuff. Thank you.